Okay, well, you survived. This is a hardcore. People showing up for the last plenary of the last day. Um, I want to remind everyone that there's going to be a, what should be a terrific party tonight. DJ uh, Reka, DJ Ian Condry, DJ Philip Tan, Vivek Bolt. It's a really interesting mix. Uh, and I want to make a change. I want to notify you of a change. What's in the program is incorrect. It starts earlier. It starts at 7.30. So be there. Um, well, as long as the booze holds up, it will be. It's about a mile away. It's a walk about a mile away. It's in a red brick 19th century civic complex. Because we fixed this conference. Uh, we have the, the hall of the court of clerks or something or other. But it will be, it'll be a blast. Um, I think in, maybe it was 2011, I wrote a piece on uh, the algorithmic turn. I was really struck by watching more and more applications of, of algorithms in media forms by uh, what struck me as a real shift from the project of the, that, that emerged with the book and three-point perspective, technologies of the self, technologies that really articulated a relation between the, the subject and the world, to something that started to look to me quite different. And that, that difference was about a, a reconfiguration of the world for me. Uh, a layer where algorithms, and I've been using this in this kind of synecdotal sense, uh, Tarleton up front, I have to remember this. Uh, using algorithm as a synecdoche for you know, an ensemble of practices, an ensemble of, of techniques and technologies. But something that is, was re-aggregating the world for me based on something about me. And that's something we see in quite a few of our media forms today. That's a, that's a really interesting moment. And it's easy to, thinking in the old way, it's easy to slide into that and say, well, it's something like ideology. You know, the, the, the warped glasses vision of ideology. Some, something in between me and the world that lets me not see the world as it is. Uh, the Marx, old, you know, old school Marx, false consciousness uh, notion. And that's not what it is. That's not what I intended in the article. It's not what I mean now. But the more, you know, since, since 2011, uh, I'm more and more convinced that something, that we are inhabiting something like an epistemic break, to say it in Foucauldian terms. There were, we're shifting regimes, and we're kind of in that middle ground. And I heard it so, it's so frequently in the papers I, I heard today, uh, today or yesterday. Uh, Philip Napoli's uh, keynote was a, 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 was, was, a, was, a, was, a, was a really vivid reminder that our, our policies and our legal systems our linguistic categories, the things that we stuff knowledge into and meaning into, are inherited from the past. And they, they're really honed, they're fine-tuned, and they work well with the systems of the past. But as we move into new spaces, they're not doing us justice. We're tending to try to retrofit the, the, the world as it is, the world as it's emerging, into these older categories, and they don't fit. So, so uh, Phil Napoli's discussion of how the FCC simply wasn't part of the time, uh, sorry, uh, part of the uh, AT&T time uh, Warner, Warner now, sorry, uh, merger, because there were no broadcast concerns involved, just speaks to how labored it is. And, and I'm, we're seeing that more and more, that the categories, the policies, just don't fit the needs of the new. And so that what this panel is going to basically do today uh, is take up that issue, is, is take up the issue of you know how, how are we if we want to think about technologies and cultures, how, does, how do our cultural forms, even basic things like language, uh, help us or hinder us from, from grappling with these emergent systems? 
They're really good at making them try to seem familiar, but they seem really bad at grasping difference and radical possibility for good or ill. So anyway, that's the space we'll go into. Um, what I'd like to do is uh, first introduce the panel. Uh, this, yeah. Um, so Nana Verhoof, a dear friend, colleague from Utrecht, associate professor of media and performance studies uh, in the department I just retired from last summer. And she specializes in comparative analysis of emerging media with a key interest in contemporary transformations in screen culture. She's published on early cinema, mobile screens, geomedia, location-based media, installations, media art, and urban media. Current research focuses on navigation and mobility, performative technologies, urban interfaces, mobile screens and installations, and location-based arts and media. She's the author of Mobile Screens, The Visual Regime of Navigation, and one of my all-time favorite books, uh, The West and Early Cinema, After the Beginning, both by the University of Amsterdam Press. Um, we'll hear uh, next from Orit Halpern, uh, who has a wonderful title. I think that's one of the all-time great titles, Strategic Hire in Interactive Design at Concordia University. That is like national. And she's also associate professor there in the Department of Sociology and Anthropology. Her work bridges the histories of science, computing, and cybernetics with design and art practice. Her uh, book, uh, Beautiful Data, A History of Vision and Reason since 1945, is published by Duke and offers a genealogy of interactivity and our contemporary obsessions with big data and data visualization. She's now working on two projects. One. Uh, the Smartness Mandate is a history and theory of smartness, environment, and ubiquitous computing. And the other, tentatively entitled Resilient Hope, examines the forms of planetary futures being produced and destroyed through high-tech, uh, large-scale infrastructural projects. Tarleton Gillespie um, is principal researcher at Microsoft Research New England, part of the Social Media Collective Research Group, and affiliated associate professor at Cornell University both in the Department of Communication and the Department of Information Science. His most recent book, which was to be had yesterday, you missed your chance, folks, to go to the bookstore or order it, um, is terrific. Custodians uh, of the Internet, Platforms, Content Moderation, and the Hidden Decisions that Shape Social Media. With Yale, which I need to find out about because the earlier two books uh, were from the MIT Press, Media Technologies. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, essays on Communication Materiality in Society, and Wired Shut, Copyright, and the Shape of Visual Culture. And last but not least, Toussaint Nutayas, uh, a postdoctoral research fellow in the Digital Civic Society Lab at Stanford University, who works at the intersection of media globalization, journalism studies, digital Sorry, cultures, and African studies, and provides a bit of continuity, actually, with our first plenary session, uh, in that he received his PhD in the School of Media and Communications at Leeds, where Dave Hesbenlard is uh, his professor. He worked as a research associate on the Media Conflict and Democratization Project in Oxford, and as a lecturer at Stanford's Center for African Studies. Among other projects, Toussaint has developed a tool, the African Stereotype Scanner, that deploys digital technologies to scan stereotypes and implicit bias in journalistic writing. So let's let the show begin. Nana, you can come on up. The first slide is there. Oh, you already put it up. I was going to. 
Do the shameless um, self-promotion a bit later, but you may as well start with that. Uh, of course, thank you for the invitation. I'm deeply honored. I've been to um, quite a few of the uh, MIT conferences, and I made it to the plenary again. Um, so besides being honored, I'm also very inspired. Uh, the diversity of uh, approaches that we encountered through this conference, from explorative and descriptive and diagnostic to critical and co-creative, brings up several things that intersect for me. The role of experimentation in a combination of creativity and criticality at moments of technological and cultural change and transition. The need for methodological response to this. Uh, for research and the need for clear and helpful concepts. And in this line, I'm thinking of how what we may tentatively call creative humanities can respond to the questions raised by our current digital culture. And I would like to reply to your opening questions, William. Um, uh, uh, departing from my current research focus that I share with colleagues at Utrecht University, uh, on what we call urban interfaces, and this is our forthcoming um, issue, and um, again, apologies for this, but um, uh, it, um, we're very proud of this uh, issue coming out pretty soon. In our search for critical and creative frameworks and concepts to address and understand the specificity of today's mediatization, datification, and the algorithmic condition of our shared social spaces, we propose to look at situated media, art, and performance, in urban public spaces. And through the conceptual lens of interface and notions of interfacing, we focus on urban screens, various forms of urban media art and media architecture as curatorial machines, as fictional data dashboards, as data dramaturgies, or mobile dispositives that construct and position the urban subject. And in Utrecht, we focus on European cities mainly, but our international research network spans a wider uh, geography. Critical perspectives on the impact of new technologies on the demos, with its binary logic of in and exclusion, but also on the other realms with Greek names, such as oikos, home, or agora, market, polis, city, or state, or Gaia, earth. And as the urban projects demonstrate hodos, meaning road or street, but importantly also way or means, is evidently urgent both in public debate and in scholarship. However, many of the creative and experimental urban artistic and sometimes activist projects that we study and participate in suggest a specific perspective for this, uh, a perspective that includes an emancipatory and engaged potential and a relational criticality. This attitude opens up a sometimes literally productive and ongoing, possibly frictional engagement, rather than an external, fixating and dismissive, perhaps solution-oriented form of critique. As such, besides offering a perspective on the digital data and algorithmic culture, experimental and creative practices, including equally experimental and creative research methods, can also provide a perspective for the various level of sociality and democracy that we have discerned during this conference. For this more inquisitive, searching and analytical response to the algorithmic and data logics of this time, in urban media art we can see situatedness, not only uh, descriptively as position or location, 
but also fundamentally as a strategy for a perhaps more productive form of relating and reflecting. This relating through situating ideally yields not only a reflection on the situation, as if one is not fundamentally part of it, but indeed offers reflection on it and our own position in the midst and the thick of our place, space, and time, which is simply put our presence in contemporary, digitized, datafied, and algorithmic cities. The cultural object, artifact, text, installation, or whatever we delineate as our object, reflects on the conditions within which it is embedded and the materials it works with but also on its own potential as part of and beyond this condition. Moreover, through its situatedness in public space, the object positions its public as collaborators, invited to be part of a reflexive process, including the researcher. As interventions working from an inherently temporary, that is time-based or temporal, temporary and inherently dynamic situatedness within the mediatized infrastructures of our public space, we can recognize experimental and hence also inherently temporary strategies deployed in experimental urban media projects of making visible and thereby debatable or by exploring alternatives, for example, by repurposing or rescaling, repositioning or re-territorializing the technological assemblages that shape our habitats and habits. This connects the hodos to metodos, the street as the method. This is inherently relationality and productivity, as well as its essentially political potential of the creative and the experimental that as scholars we can embrace. With political, I refer here to what Chantal Mouffe recognizes as the ever-present possibility of antagonisms, or what she prefers, agonisms in all relations or forms of relationality, or in the words of William Kentridge, ambiguity, contradiction, uncompleted gestures, and uncertain endings. What I also mean to suggest here is that an object's or a scholar's productivity should not be seen as simply mirroring quantification in a neoliberal P. Productivity also implies a making that brings about change, and that in its process transcends the conditions of its own possibility, bringing in also uncertainty. In addition, making implies a being in touch with materials and social and artistic forms, always with an eye on questioning what is known and exclusionary, and creating, hopefully, what is not yet, but can possibly be more inclusive. In my work, I'm interested in unpacking all this by using the concept of encounter. A creative humanities approach is emphatically experimental and comfortable with knowledge production in uncertainty, multiplicity, and friction. It is creative in designing and developing its own methods and approaches as it seeks to navigate and explore the productive connections and reciprocal relationships between the creative practices it engages with, and to develop conceptual analytical approaches for what these practices also work with or work from. Through their engagement with contemporary societal and cultural issues, questions and debates and frictions around the pervasive presence and proliferation of media technologies and assemblages in public space, 
experimental creative media projects in the widest sense of the word designed for debate but also for conceptual foci. They make proposals not only on the level of issues or agenda settings such as trust in the age of hyperconnectivity, tensions between visibility and invisibility in the datafied smart city, how to design for a more than human city, or how to adopt a planetary perspective for earthy concerns, or how to design for new urban commons, and subjects like that, but precisely through these themes, also for a conceptual vocabulary, by readdressing and rearticulating concepts such as situatedness, dramaturgy, curation, friction, dialogue and deixis, performativity, interaction, partnership, collaboration, and other relational encounters. Concepts as terms with precedent, always inherently from other fields, domains, and times, migrate, they change and travel, to invoke Mikabal's term. But as such, they also connect, synchronically and diachronically, and create, they bring forth, produce, make. Emphasizing the temporal dynamic inherent in concepts, we can say that now, as before, they can help us to keep becoming specific about what's going on. <laughs> Um, by one of the engineers I was working with at this site, um, 
Uh, Quebec, and this is a quote, Quebec is for mining what Switzerland is for banks. All right, so glad I moved there. Um, so anyway, um, because the ore quality is significantly degraded, so there's really no easy mining left on Earth, so we're really working pretty hard to get it. The amount being mined in this site is only one part per million, which is to say one ton of rock per one gram of gold. But this is still profitable. It costs $650 a gram, I was told, to mine, and the current price of gram of gold this morning was 1286 USD. So you can't really lose there. And all the metals, this is a ge the geoengineer, uh, we were also working with a mine uh, reclamation geoengineer, uh, gave us this chart of when we're running out of everything, so it doesn't matter how much we, including technological advancements and all that possibly derivative extractive technologies we emerge, this is their bet for when we run out of everything, no matter, um, so it's coming. So uh, that means that uh, gold is a pretty good hedge bet. It's gonna become more valuable. Um, and this is also a super smart site. Yes, you think smartness is just about cities, think again. Uh, in fact, one of the things that I would like to rethink is, um, we talked about the demos and the polis, but how do new automated technologies, particularly AI, big data, um, machine learning, and these new computational infrastructures transform, of course, the relationship between the urban and the hinterland, between the rural and the urban, between what we may have once called nature and culture, the demos, uh, the polis, and um, outside. So it's a smart site. It's fully automated, except uh, the truck drivers. But in the Chilean sites I've been in, they're automating that too. In fact, Toyota has all its uh, kind of pioneer projects and things like this. And the geology surveys involve vast numbers of sensors, a lot of high-frequency radio, infrared and spectroscopy mapping from the air and satellites, and large amounts of modeling and simulation, since these are really big holes. So you get all those earthquakes. Um, of both stability and environmental impact, um, as well as a massive supply chain optimization, since this is kind of a globally integrated um, site. And the result of all this smartness is that by the end of the life of the mine, which is probably 12 years, if you're lucky, they'll get another four kilometers down, they'll get 25, is upwards of 750 million tons of waste rock and tailings as a result, which you are now watching. Um, this results also in a kind of boom-bust economy as towns in the region are abandoned or left to die once the labor demands dry up. But don't worry, this will all be reclaimed, um, in this case, to a golf course, although usually the industry standard is the boreal forest. They kind of like try to cover it up, the hole, and bring back the forest. Doesn't always work so well. But anyway, um, even if, uh, so it's all gonna be reclaimed, even if there are a few heavy metals in the water now, and efforts are made um, and here you can see calcium carbonate being pumped into the water, so everything right under the topsoil is extremely acidic. So the water comes off of this installation at about 2 to 3 pH and has to be up to a neutral amount. So they pump calcium carbonate back into the nice boreal forest, you can see. Um, so the water is being deacidified. And there's also a lot of sulfur and cyanide in it, because that's how you get the gold out of the rock. But um, when I talk to the ecologists who work on this site, this is called resilience. So it's not, and one of my other projects is a lot about the history of resilience, what that term is doing, what it's doing politically. So it's not that things aren't destroyed. Um, obviously, this whole makes an impact on the environment. But uh, the functions, what we like to call ecosystem services right now, are being maintained. And of course, that's a big question. What language would we have to produce to not be thinking only in terms of ecosystem services and um, nature as a kind of site of extraction? But worry not, all this is actually not for jewelry, so it's not what you're wearing that is the sole culprit for this. 
uh, upwards of 95% goes right back underground into the vaults of banks in Switzerland and London <laughs> to act as another commodity grounding speculation and currency. So it's one of the ultimate hedge bets. I thought we were off the gold standard, but I actually found out we're not. Um, uh, and in fact, also Bitcoin, there's all sorts of different modes of currency uh, betting going on here. So um, this is a kind of form of volatility and insecurity that's being used to bet against other forms of volatility to feed the ongoing, um, all of which are themselves algorithmically um, um, kind of motivated in order to kind of liquefy the planet and hopefully bet on this not so certain future. And in the meantime, all this betting can keep going because the mind just blows the environment friendly, so we end up with smart, um, resilient green extraction rates. Um, and I tell you this story because it elucidates some of the challenges and possibilities of what it means to think critically and historically about media in terms of logistics and infrastructure today. First, as a historian of science, it points to the histories of knowledge um, and power, the histories of the sciences of geology and ecology, um, along with the theories of evolution and the kind of models of life that are inherent within these forms of knowledge. And it's important to call that behind all of our theories of technology, and especially of artificial intelligence and machine learning, are conceptions of evolution. And this story, um, and, but this story is also about histories of finance, and of course economy and ecology share a root that we have to take seriously, um, and of algorithms that make this site possibly, possible. Particularly, the site demonstrates how computational and algorithmic technologies, such as the Black Skull's derivative pricing equation, and all the smart mining tech used to try to get resources out of an increasingly fatigued earth with very low-grade quality ore, reformulate older extractive and settler colonial economies. So I'm really interested in how new high-tech smart city and, and, and big data infrastructures are overlaying themselves on top of um, older histories of coloniality and race. This mine, of course, is on unceded indigenous lands, the Anishinaabe Nation. But the equations are also key, and they derive from the slave trade. Derivative markets were first used to set off insurance risks by the Dutch and then British East India trading companies. These were among the first calculative technologies that both created new forms of territory. Here's a, a replay of the compiled risk charts that Lloyds of London used to put together so you could aggregate you know, a safe trip like the Mediterranean with the Atlantic Passage in order to lower your risk. So not only did it create a new form of probabilistic territory out of the ocean and a new form of mapping, but it also transformed human beings, these um, derivative markets, into population. So it's the first kind of metric that allowed this kind of, or one of the premier ones, to transform human beings into populations and commodities and value to this new tech of probability. This also brings me to technologies of time. The most heavily derived markets on Earth aren't energy and commodity markets, particularly oil and carbon. As we speculate and build tech to hedge bets on literally global survival, we need to attend to the techniques by which we manage and make time in media and technical systems, and of course how they translate or do not to other systems and other forms of life. So smart infrastructures, if we will, point to new questions of temporality and scale. Um, and this is my first major point. But both times of geology and times of machines and algorithmic speculation, and of course the fragile biological time um, in between. And in terms of scale, we must also think about the term planetary. So that's a term I want to introduce. It's a relationship to older concepts of globalization. 
The planetary for me is about disjunctures and differential exposures to varying forms of sociological risk. It's about the integration, in fact, arbitrage of difference between places and populations through logistical systems that don't homogenize but govern through um, differentials. Second, this also brings up questions of materialities, both the materialities, of course, of rocks, but I also want to urge us to start making infrastructure a little less visible. That sounds crazy because I just showed you this. But there's a tendency to want to reveal. We love like the infrastructural reveal. I'm going to show you how it works, and then everything will change. But I don't, I'm not really sure. Because if people see the fiber optic cable, I'm not necessarily sure they necessarily care. So I need to attach it to narratives. And also take as seriously imaginaries, fictions, hopes, and speculations to play as much uh, a part of the way we organize life, habitat, and territory to new media tech as the metal. So I urge paying attention to the material of the earth, but also to the material of the algorithm, knowledge, as well as desire, ideology, and imagination. And finally, it prompts us to ask about global assemblages and how they afford or incapacitate new forms of politics, action, and territorial imaginary. So for example, as a historian, it's important for me to understand the complex times of um, finance, how the integration of newer logics, older histories of slavery and colonialism, and new technical infrastructures and that's what such an ex examination might afford us in terms of complicated action. For example, this is the Kinder Morgan type pipeline, but right now activists are trying to shut down these pipelines through arbitrage between actors and changing risk valuations in a new game that pits finance versus finance that we have to kind of look into. Finally, um, there's questions of methodology. I like to work collaboratively, and on a personal level, I also work with my students. This was all part of a speculative design lab. Um, other scholars and designers, and we're working here to develop science fictions and designs, and working um, in this particular case, we're actually working with a mine reclamation engineer, and we're going to be going back to develop um, a kind of speculative research studio. So like we started by doing stuff like writing science fictions, and my students created all sorts of possible um, projects around how we might inhabit this catastrophe, if we will. So I stand upon fiction, and I stand on the, on the artist, artistic and humanities place. I also run the speculative art and humanities lab. You're reminding engineering, engineering and technologists that the future is never fully determined. We just need new tactics, methods, and materials. We need to think about experimenting for the future. Thank you. So uh, I don't have any, any cool pictures to look at, I apologize for that, but let me start with an observation, and for those who have been here for a little while, it's an easy one. Um, over the course of the two days, I noticed a lot of concern and anxiety and even regret uh, in the work that's being presented in this conference. Uh, so there's certainly a striking difference from the first couple of conferences in the series, uh, where we don't have the same kind of cautious optimism uh, that may have animated some of our earliest questions about democracy and new media. And that's so not come as a surprise when people are doing the work in this area. And I think that in some ways, uh, how we conduct our inquiries and how we resolve tensions between thinking about continuity and thinking about change are ever more vital. They've always been a pressing part of this conversation, but they're extremely vital. 
Um, so I thought I would take the prompt. Part of the discussion that uh, sort of stirred this panel was about how we grapple with, uh, in our own language, in our own uh, scholarly approaches, with this tension between sort of how to connect to the continuous and how to identify change. Um, and particularly around language, and that's something I think about a lot. So I thought what I would do is um, just sort of reveal my own sort of agonies and anxieties about language and the work that I do uh, in the hopes that maybe that will just reassure you or will open up some possibilities. Uh, I, think we, I think we all struggle to give language to complexity. We want to describe complex things. Uh, and I think language in some ways fights us a, a little bit in that regard. We struggle with to, to give names and compelling terms to things that are bureaucracies, things that are systems, things that are networks, things that are assemblages and infrastructures. And part of the reason why I think that's so difficult is that um, words themselves tend to isolate and objectify. Um, they bleed away the, the sense of interconnectedness to give us sort of comfortable notions about individualized, atomized things that have sort of cause and effect with each other. Um, I'm really fascinated with the, the kind of discourse around technology, which means I have to grapple with this in my thinking. And here's my typical tactic. The next time you read one of my articles, you go, yeah, he's got he's to move. He does. Um, so I like to call attention to a concept, whether that be platform or algorithm or take your pick. Um, I usually try to choose one that I think represents sort of a contemporary coalescing of connected elements that I see as being pulled together. And I'm interested in the work of pulling it together, not just the word, but those people who are calling into existence, making it do work, um, having it mean something. Uh, and I use that term uh, to sort of you know, recognize what's the discursive value to the stakeholders, what kind of work is that doing. Um, then immediately, almost immediately, I start struggling with the way that it gets singularized, right? the way that that word sort of stands in for the complexity that's being built. It's the very thing I'm trying to highlight, but the word is so compelling, both to the stakeholders involved but also to scholars as well. Um, and, and I think there's something, again, it's like maybe my own doing, right, where as soon as something has kind of a tasty noun attached, um, it creates kind of a figure and ground problem, right? It calls into attention a thing, and it sets it apart from the background. And as soon as you're trying to say, well, you know, what's an algorithm really? It's really a set of practices and a set of sort of institutional relationships and a sort of you know, man-machine symbiosis, but you keep saying algorithm, 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 Right? There's a, a tendency to nounify a thing that you're actually trying to say is uh, much more complex. Not to mention that the industries that are involved, um, hello employer, uh, are quite discursively hungry. They want these terms. Right? They need these terms to do the work that they do. Um, and it's in some ways dangerous to play with uh, the master's vocabulary. Um, I think also some of the terms that we have to throw around, um, social media, um, tend to erase issues of race and gender and power and inequity. So in addition to our own inability, many of us, to attend to those issues, I think even the language, right, which is being deployed to sound functional, to erase itself from social tensions, then even fights our own best interest to sort of raise those questions with them. And not to mention, for many of us, the sort of cycles of news and concern that are moving so quickly, it's incredibly tempting to chase the problems as they're framed. We want to do something about misinformation or fake news, right? And we then have to play this game. Do we say fake news? Do we not say fake news? Has fake news been you know, pulled out from under us? Um, in some ways, those of us who are dealing with those sort of timely issues, um, we struggle with whether we are studying these technolo technological dramas or whether we're contenders in them. 
Um, as I was sitting there, I was trying to think, dear God, what's the connection between our talks so far? Um, but, but I will say uh, that I think all of us are trying to figure out how to push ourselves and push against certain kinds of discursive settlement, right? So I think you know, the kind of challenge that an art installation imposes is to sort of fight against a normative take, give people that room for friction, right? And the kind of like insistent interconnectedness of the case that Ori just described pushes against the tendency to sort of see these issues as isolated, right? See actors as doing things and start to recognize how all of these systems are interconnected. Um, the narrative that I tend to push against is a kind of um, uh, one where many of us are familiar with, a kind of like, here comes the technology, therefore effects happen in some language that effects are good, and in some people effects are bad. Um, but that either way, it's this kind of like, um, uh, what Carolyn Marmot calls a kind of artifactual history, right? Everything that came before the technology is sort of the prehistory of the technology. The technology arrives, and it's our job to sort of narrate and explain the consequences, whether you think they're terrific, progressive, or uh, disastrous. Um, and, and she argues against that. She's one of sort of like the, my sort of go-to figures. Um, but I admire uh, this conference in part because in its bones, it used language that sort of demanded a slightly different take, right? I think the word transition, I wasn't around when you thought about whether you use that word, but I, I think it creates a very sort of powerful fulcrum, right? To move us from uh, seeing things in the now, right? We have to see things over time, even if that time is compressed or extended. Um, and we have to think about things as being in one state or another, right? They're in, in transition, right? They're changing. For me, uh, and this is sort of like the exercise that I keep doing, maybe the failure in the sort of like what's a platform, what's an algorithm approach, um, is that I lean on sort of three scholars. So I just want to sort of like highlight because they connect together for me and they push against this tendency that I think is so powerful in our scholarship and so powerful in the public discussion. Um, so I don't want three people. The first one is Carolyn Marvin, uh, and I'm drawing on the book When Old Technologies Are New. If you haven't read it, you should. Um, but I would even just say, read the introduction, it's astounding. She had an instinct that the debates that frame the introduction of the new technology are actually burning before the technology is introduced. Right? They are persistent and precedent debates that the technology then sort of lands into. Uh, here's a line from that introduction. Uh, the focus, her focus, is shifted from the instrument to the drama in which existing groups perpetually negotiate power authority, representation, and knowledge, with whatever resources are available, new media intrude on these negotiations by providing new platforms, I'll choose that word, on which old groups confront one another. And I think that question about when we see a technology emerge and we say, wow, what effect is Twitter having? One of the questions I want to ask is, what was already being asked? What was already at issue that Twitter seemed an answer to? And that helps us understand why it was taken up at all and why it was taken up in the ways that it was. The second is Brian Pfaffenberger. He wrote a really amazing article called Technological Dramas in 1992. And his instinct follows Carolyn Marvin's. Um, that when technologies become a site for these dramas, these contestations, these back and forths, they're fought out through discourse. And he says that the technologies themselves are political assertions of what should be. Um, but they have to then be sort of like packed with discourse to make them have political force. Um, that discourse is sometimes argument, but it's more often vocabulary design, it's myth-making, it's ritual. And then immediately, those discursive claims are open to interpretation and counter-discourse. 
And that's what we see. It's that sort of like back and forth about the technology, which is really a back and forth about some kind of like pressing social issue being fought over the technology. And then the third is Adrian Johns. And I'm thinking about his book, The Nature of the Book. And again, amazing book, but go right to the introduction. And what he argues uh, is that what truly spells out the significance of a technology is not the technology itself and what it did, but it's the social and institutional arrangements that follow, right, that happen after, that take the technology into account and stabilize it in certain forms. So he's talking about print in particular in this form. And he says a lot of things we attribute to print, right? Um, it's uh, the, the content is stabilized, it's reproducible, it gets distributed far and wide. And people like Elizabeth Eisenstein would say that's what made the scientific revolution possible. That's what made the Reformation possible. He says those things weren't true about print for the first 50 years. They became true because some of those things, like stability of content, were the things that the guilds fought over, right? And law, the precedence of IP fought over. Those were the things that made print be print. And he says what, what mattered was not print, but print culture. Right? All of those things that sort of get um, riveted onto the technology and stabilized it into place, so much so that our historical view looks back and says, aha, print did that. Right? But print wasn't print right away. So how do we think about the questions that bubbled before a technology even emerged, to which a technology that gets taken up as a kind of answer or assertion or alternative, the opportunistic contests that swirl around the technology and try to give it name and significance, and then the arrangements that get riveted onto the technology and settle that technology into place, and in doing so, reconstitute some of the social tensions that were there all along. And I find that this, in some way, is a real challenge for our terminology. It's a real challenge for our language uh, and, the, and the ability to frame our inquiries to match that scale of concern, right? The bubbling and the contestation and the settling. Um, I don't have a grand answer on how to do that. In some ways, I shouldn't because it's a collective enterprise. And I think we all have to have ways to chip away at that problem. Um, right now, I'm thinking a little bit about a, a, a sort of maybe a kind of discursive trick um, where we take some of the contemporary terms that are being used right now and we push them backwards into histories where they don't belong. Uh, and so the paper I proposed for the conference was called The Prehistory of Content Moderation. I didn't then write it because uh, William said, well, why don't you go to the plenary? I was like, great. Um, but here's what I'm thinking about, um, which is uh, we're, we have this immense debate about content moderation as a sort of feature of major social media platforms. That's what I've been sort of thinking about for the last couple of years. Uh, and an, an intense political discussion and an institutional discussion and a scholarly discussion. Um, and part of me wants to think, like, well, who were the content moderators 60 years ago? Right? Who did that? work? Did that role exist at all? And there are a couple of examples that I would think about. So things like the people who do standards and practices in television networks. Um, the departments that before they were standards and practices were called continuity acceptance. That's a great phrase, right? There were people whose work it was to be a private information distributor and make decisions about propriety and harm based on their judgments of what their audience did or did not expect, judgments that were not shared by the entire audience match those with both sort of public and ethical notions of what's right, legal threats about what might be limited, and then commercial interests about you know, what that network or radio broadcast or newspaper sort of needs to have happen. Um, and I think it's interesting because in some ways that was a, a part of the television industry, the radio industry, the film industry. 
a relatively unattended to part. So this is not about finding precedent and showing continuity. It's saying like, I want to find the thing that wasn't precedent but was there all along, right? When you look back at the literature that's about censorship and regulation, they're really interested in the role that regulators played, right? What did the FCC allow or not allow? But there were a whole bunch of people at all of those television networks and magazines making what looked like moderating decisions, but they were built into something else. They were built into curatorial decisions or about um, uh, you know, obeying the law or about what we put on first or what we didn't. Right? They were wrapped into, and they were also wrapped into mechanisms of, of control. Right? It wasn't kicking someone off the network. It was this was built into the contract or the salary. Um, in some ways, those kind of moves, for me, because I'm not someone who's going to invent a new theoretical term, because I'm playing with the words that we have already, um, I think what it does is it displaces the power of novelty in our own thinking, right? The tendency to start where the technology did. Uh, it forces us to fight that a little bit. It tends to undercut extremist positions in the debate, so we can't say this has never happened before, because we can force our thinking to include things that preceded it. And maybe it can trouble our own positions, right? So. Um, I spoke to a bunch of people who do content moderation, and I said, you're not so different from the people who did standards and practices and said, you know, don't show Janet Jackson's people on television. And they were like, I was like, yeah, it's not a cool job. Not a cool comparison, right? Um, but this is a role. Like, how did those people think of their responsibility or not? How is that configured? And the goal there is not to erase the differences and say it's always been the same, um, but to bring those differences into a much more precise focus. Last thing I'll say is that I find Marvin's instincts and Pfaffenberger's instincts and Adrian Johnson's instincts as a useful corrective. Um, but I'm haunted by the risk that there's something that those approaches are destined to miss. Something about not just the new, but the um, never before articulated. Uh, and I don't, I think there's probably less than one would worry, right? There's a lot of historical continuity, there's a lot of the ongoing. Um, but I wonder what's left. Thanks. Hi, everyone. Um, I want to start straight off by thanking uh, the organizing committee and everyone who's been involved in the organization of the conference. It's been—it's my first time at the conference. It's been very rich and stimulating, uh, and really humble to be part of this. Uh, Closing plenary. Um, what I'm going to talk about is really a direct response to that question, but before that, I'm really happy to actually speak right after the three of you because I do see uh, a lot of the overlaps with what you've talked about, Nana, with the situatedness of researchers and the politics of that, um, or it with the question of extraction and infrastructures and, and history. And as you'll see in my presentation, uh, Talton, language is kind of really, I think, an issue that we're all grappling with. So, let me start. Uh, in my current project, I see two key terms that encapsulate this question of precedent. These are net neutrality and digital colonialism. So I want to start by saying a few words about the project as a whole, and then I'll explain how these concepts come into play and the challenges and opportunities they bring about. I'm currently researching a Facebook initiative called Free Basics. Free Basics is a project aimed at increasing global connectivity across the global south primarily. It is an app that offers free access to basic services like news, weather, jobs, uh, job services. And it's essentially, you have, what you have there is uh, text content you don't have access to, videos or images. And how it works is that telecom operators partner with Facebook to offer these services. Facebook builds the platform and the telecom operators pay for the traffic. 
And the idea here is to target first-time users who, after getting a taste of the internet, will want to access the entire internet, thus buying and eventually paying for data. Some of you may have heard about this project by the initial name, which was internet.org, but this name was changed after what happened in India in 2015. As the initiative was being rolled out in India, a group of local activists started to forcefully oppose it. Their main criticism was that Facebook acted as a gatekeeper of the internet by pre-selecting services available on the app without transparency and with detrimental effects on smaller services and local startups. In a nutshell, they decried free basics as a violation of net neutrality, that is the principle that internet service providers should treat all internet traffic equally. Throughout 2015, you had a, a really highly publicized national debate over net neutrality that unfolded. And it concluded in early 2016 with the Indian regulator banning free basics and similar offers known as zero rating. Now this ban, and I imagine several of you have heard about it, uh, was widely perceived as a massive blow to Facebook, in particular because Facebook saw India as a tremendous opportunity for user growth. In 2013, it had about one billion people that were not yet uh, online. So in some ways, the, the, the India debacle was the first major global political scandal for Facebook, and that is before the fallout of the 2016 presidential elections, US election, and the Cambridge Analytica scandal. To most observers, the pushback in India signaled the end of free basics. Indeed, in my research, what I found is that there's this tr tremendous peak of global interest, search interest, news media interest uh, in 2015 that focused on India, and then it really dramatically decreases and kind of dies down. And that gives the impression that the project stopped. But this is highly misleading. In fact, Facebook moved forward with the project around the world. In my latest count, a few weeks ago, Free Basics was available in 65 countries, including 30 on the African continent. Moreover, this global expansion has been accompanied by a range of additional connectivity experiments, particularly across Africa, which is the focus of my research. These include the development of Facebook-designed Wi-Fi hotspots, as well as a range of investments in backbone infrastructures. Facebook is currently investing in the construction of fiber optic infrastructure in South Africa, in Uganda, in Nigeria. It is also funding another core infrastructure, internet exchange points, um, across the continent via partnership with the American nonprofit, the Internet Society. And just last month, the Wall Street Journal was reporting that Facebook was in talk to build an undersea cable surrounding the entire continent. So in this research project, I asked, why didn't we see pushback against free basics, uh, you know, similar to the one that we saw in India, or spillover from the India uh, debate to other parts of the world? Um, and by focusing on those countries, those 30 countries in, on the continent where it was launched, and because you know this is really like this is those have been like the, the this is the continent where we've had most uh, free basics projects. I argue that it's the result of three processes. The first one is a lack of net neutrality regulation, but more generally a loose regulatory context favorable to such corporate experiments. The second reason is Facebook evolving tactic, which involved retreating from grand PR about this project and increasingly engaging local civil society and tech ecosystems as a way, if you'd like, to capture actors likely to lead the charge against these projects. Last, uh, what I argue is that local digital rights organizations have been dealing with threats like internet shutdowns, government surveillance, and censorship, which I felt more urgent and pressing. So overall, I argue that understanding what happens at the so-called peripheries of the digital economy offers important insights for the debate about digital media and democracy. 
It notably highlights emerging and pressing areas of concerns, including the worrying use of marginalized population <coughs> for digital experiments and data extraction. It also includes the growing role of tech corporations in developing and controlling backbone infrastructures. And it also highlights the risk of corporate capture of the digital civil society. So now let me come back to my two terms, net neutrality and digital colonialism. Now in this debate around free basics, I found the concept of net neutrality to be largely taken for granted. By that I mean free basic is seen as a violation of net neutrality because it discriminates traffic and that it ought to be opposed normatively. At the same time, that concept is really born of the very peculiar US regulatory context and debates over classification of ISPs, ISPs as common carriers. So in its current US-inspired formulation, the concept of net neutrality is significantly <coughs> challenged by geographical context with low internet penetration and where access to data is highly costly. So for instance, one of the things I've found is that local digital rights organizations throughout the continent tend to generally support net neutrality, but almost no organization take a strong position against zero rating. Indeed, zero rating offers not just free basics, but you know, other forms of zero rating are pervasive in the majority of these countries. And banning zero rating at the moment would primarily and negatively impact poorer users. And so this is one thing that I'm hoping to highlight through my project. Uh, it's how local digital rights organizations reconcile this tension between, on the one hand, the advocacy that's adopting a US, you know, US grounded normative concept, but also local realities in which they're, um, they're doing their advocacy. Now, about digital colonialism, it's a bit of a different point that I want to make. Um, but I want, I want to say I'm coming to this research from the perspective of someone interested in culture, media, and unequal power relations. My training is in cultural studies and post-colonial theory, not in internet studies. So I have to say I find that the, 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 you know, the, the idea that tech corporations are behaving in ways reminiscent of colonial powers appealing by building infrastructures that serve their own interests, although I claiming to uh, wanting to change the world. And to be fair, this is a notion that digital colonialism that's gained currency among activists for a few years now. And it's great to see uh, scholars picking it up. And you know, already you, you brought that in. And this morning, um, Elise Shalim from the University of Toronto had this great presentation where she also talked about the colonial sort of ancestry of what we're seeing now. Um, and while I find the concept extremely powerful, especially as an advocacy tool, I think that as an analytical framework, it needs a bit of refining. And in particular, I think we may risk jumping from the colonial context to the present era without engaging enough with the continuity of colonial power in the post-colonial era. So what I mean in plain terms is that um, if you look at the two decades uh, that followed the wave of decolonization in the 1960s and the 1970s, uh, what we saw especially was um, private Western multinational corporations uh, really playing an increasingly important role in formerly colonized countries and increasingly over uh, former state actors. And it is perhaps in this context that we may find the most relevant circle precedent. And one example, and I'm going to conclude with this, um, is uh, some of you may remember uh, these debates, is Nestle uh, marketing practices for infant formula milk uh, across Africa, Asia, and Latin America in the 1970s. What the corporation did basically was one, it created a need, two, it convinced customers that, or you know, consumers that its product was essential to a good life, and three, it gave away free samples. 
Never mind that formula was expensive, Nestle advertisement framed breastfeeding as difficult and prone to failure. Moreover, the free samples contributed to create a physiological need for formula. As a mother would rely on formula, breast milk production would start to decrease. So in many ways, the Free Basics Initiative followed a similar pattern. Facebook aimed to convince poor people in the now developing world that connectivity was essential to economic development and a good life. It similarly gave free samples with the view that it would lead to further consumption. Lastly, I think recent insights about the intentionally addictive nature of social media platforms resonate with the physiological needs that were created by the formula industry. And so in conclusion, I would say that thinking through such precedents uh, is something that I think is really particularly important and productive, especially to reorient or to keep our scholarship oriented towards questions of power and inequalities, and that this is really uh, the first necessary step in order to start imagining uh, future alternatives. All right. plan and what we talked about was that this was going to be a little more dialogic at the end of a long day. But um, on the other hand, we have, we have probably about 15 to 20 minutes for discussion with you guys. So I think I'll say a couple of words, but probably just we'll switch plans and go uh, right to the audience. One thing I do want to say, this was not part of the plan, but I'm so gratified. What you just heard is what the Comparative Media Studies Program does. It's Carolyn Marvin and Adrian Johns. It's sort of using the new to interrogate and see what we've missed about the old. It's experimentation. It's, it's looking at infrastructure and trying to problematize those systems, just what kinds of categories we put those systems in. Um, I'm really I'm thrilled. This couldn't have been better in that sense. Um, and I think, you know, what's come up in, in a way in a couple of papers is something like Collier and Arms. We use the phrase up here, global assemblages. And so your paper really hits that in the sense of the global assemblages of the colonial and moment of deterritorialization. And that's a, it's a really strange moment. So these categories are helpful. They're really helpful. It's helpful to go back and see where they came from. Um, we've got a hint here of some of the, some of the tricks and techniques that, that make this work. So Tarleton suggested kind of going back and seeing what we've missed in terms of these, these practices in the past. Nana used the Heidegger trick of actually deep mining. Um, deep mining. Write that down. Write that down. Yeah. Thank you. No, I mean, but if you think about what Heidegger does and why he's you know, a pain in the butt to read often, it's that he's always going back to the Greek and he's always deconstructing the language he works in. He's working at the frontiers of the sable. And in German, that's a, that's, a, that's a trick because you can say quite a bit with that language. It's, it's a great language. But he, he'll probe it and he'll often take it back to the Greek to sort of discover recursively like what's there that has been there all the time and we haven't seen. But again, all to say maybe this does happen at moments where things are changing significantly and we, we, um, we have to kind of rethink those terms. Anyway, what I want to do is open it up to you guys and um, I'll run the mic. Uh, so if there are questions from the audience, raise those hands high. And there's one now. I'm going to grab a mic. Yes, yes. 
you know, aligning the opposition to Facebook with uh, governments of discourse. Um, there's also the culture of you know, uh, newspapers and, and the media. Um, but there's also something to keep in mind, which is Facebook was the first time that they were facing a situation like that. Much of what they, how they reacted were the engineering mind frame. It was like, oh, there's a problem, let's troubleshoot it. Let's do a big advertisement campaign. That backfired. And then you know, they said, oh, well, people are going to vote. They're going to send messages to the regulator. Let's just send a message to everyone who's on Facebook in India to tell them to support us. And that backfired. And every time you know, the, sort of the mind frame of the company was um, you know, not aware of the political implication as much as you know, they are becoming now. So I think you know, those are some areas. Um, thanks for your question. It's a really big one, so I'm not going to... Um... <laughs> uh, all right. I, I don't know if I'm going to answer it all. But um, also drawing like Trump and all the other talks to responding to what you're just saying, I think you're pointing one, of course, at um, questions in some sense of visibilities, or maybe we should say sensory capacities and media infrastructures as they're located historically. Um, a lot of my work on ecology, I look at people like the Odoms and their work in Micronesia after the World War II bombs and the way that that made, term transformed ecology not only into a new form of visibility and planetary scale relationality, but also in terms of energy. That actually, it transformed how we understood uh, the relations between things. Which leads me to this question of militarization versus securitization. I think there's a lot to be said, but one of the things I really want us to think about is the way we also seamlessly extend the past. So it's really important to attend to colonial and military um, prefiguring things, but we also have new assemblages, and that transforms the nature of power and knowledge and the way that politics and differentials and who's being impacted and how happen. And one of the most things I'm interested in is separation in terms of securitization is the transformation of event structure around crisis and shock. So one of the things resilience marks instead of shock and trauma is a constant that the system is always under stress. And you know, I've worked also in Kolkata actually a lot on resilience planning and, and kind of failed smart city projects there and the way that um, credit debt swaps and leveraging relate to dispossession in India actually, as well as globally. And one of the interesting things is the way that reconfiguring both through NGOs and other things, the idea that we have to deal with precarity and resilience for the people who are the most vulnerable as a kind of regular state. And so for me as a historian, what's important is to note that novel, what's new about that as it appropriates older structures of military or colonial power. And for us to try to think about that tactically, what does that what new affordances and what also new forms of life are being cut off through these transformations historically between, let's say, militarization and security, whatever we want to call it. And maybe we need a new language because I'm, I'm kind of running low on my microphone right now. I'm kind of like, I need, I need something else. I can't go beyond beyond biopower any longer, so I'm looking for some ideas here. <laughs> I'll have to go for tea. <laughs> <laughs> could, I, could I ask, just given our, our weird mic situation at the moment, two died on us. If you have questions, just kind of come up here and we'll flip this mic around and you can ask them off mic. Thank you. We can go up there. <laughs> we can change seats. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I'm happy to walk. Uh, thanks to that. <laughs>
My name is Lisa Strangfeld. Thanks for that great uh, bringing language into it. I'm just thinking about, I heard Richard Holbrook, may he rest in peace, he just died, um, speak at Beijing Plus Five. Um, that was orientated towards a woman, of course. He gave a speech about how when you have new technology, women are early adapters. He said he saw this happen with the agricultural revolution in the um, developing countries, and then he was experiencing it again with uh, technology. This was like the year 2000, that was e-commerce was in its early phases, and he saw like in Africa a village where the women were getting very prosperous from this technology, and the men came in and just shut it down. So, and this also the film industry, you know, I was studying that, and that was a lot of women's voices early before it became commercially viable. So today I got very inspired by this uh, podcast um, panel that was all women's voices. It was extraordinary. And that was, that this is a hot spot, and that again, it seems like women's voices, but they haven't just decided how this is going to be commercially viable. So maybe, you know, is this still an issue um, 20 years later after Richard Hallberg warned about this? And how can this be addressed within the academy, within the language being utilized here to have, and I'll, you know, it happened with Huffington Post, actually. I was a writer for Huffington Post. From one minute to the next, they shut down that entire network and area Huffington had that vision of giving women a voice, you know, through the, the blogging network. And then, you know, as it got more and more corporate, it just didn't seem necessary anymore. <clears throat> now, I know the issue is that women are labor that's not, you know, being paid. And that's part of why they are early adapters. But how can we bring that into a dialectic, I think, is what I look for. It's a hugely important question. Um, it draws my attention to the possibility that we need to think about the discursive institutional work that happens around the technology that we separate from the technology, but that actually is having momentous force as to how the technology moves forward. So you reminded me of the story of sort of Jen Light's work, thinking about women as computers, the kind of um, refiguring of who does what I think is a really subtle element. We've seen it happen with a lot of technologies, and we see it uh, happening again today. So where, where is it possible that if women are often among the early adopters and yet find as the technology stabilizes that they are not equal participants in production or in management or whatever, um, where were the moments where the symbolic work that said, this is what a podcaster looks like, or this is what uh, a user of social media looks like, or this is the best example of a breakthrough user. How are those moments coded, or how are those moments doing work that separate out different sort of visions of who does and who doesn't? Um, where we know that it's nothing endemic to the technology, right? We can find lots of examples where there was, wasn't something about the technology itself, there was something about the, the formulation of the technology as it moved forward that seemed to sift, right, who, who, who seems to be at the, at the levers and who doesn't. Maybe just to say, even even in our own trade, what's so what's so good to hear uh, in terms of the discussion of experimentation and creative engagements with some of these ideas, that's sort of new within uh, at least the part of the academy that I inhabit, and it's um, there's been kind of a, a methodological 
purity over the long haul, a myth of some kind of way of doing, doing our work that this sort of deviates from. And that it, obviously it enriches and poses new questions, offers this way to step out of the trap of, of, uh, of those categories and of those binary, the binary oppositions that aren't holding up for us anymore. Um, but they're also like slightly gendered a little bit, or at least they're kind of cast as, as weird, uh, not to say that. How? Well, how? I mean, I mean, look at the debates within the university over what constitutes, look, look at the debates in journals or universities over what constitutes coherent work, mm -hmm. uh, what constitutes a legitimate course, mm -hmm. uh, the, the place of practice in so many places. This, this is a university that embraces practice. Its motto is mens and manus. But God forbid, in the humanities, that, that is a, that's an endeavor that you engage in. When you, when you break from the very narrow strictures of what constitutes practice within a, within a disciplinary domain. I mean, we've had our share of fights in this group in terms mm. of trying you know, radical experimentation and trying to give credit for it. Um, it doesn't always go over easily. So, yeah. Sorry. I just want to... I just want to plug in the, a book by someone called Namjalanya Boa. She's a, a Kenyan blogger, and if you're interested in early adopters of digital technologies, she has a, a chapter in her book about Kenyan, Kenyan feminism that you really, um, they were the early adopters of Twitter, and they've really been behind um, most of the digital innovation that we've seen here. So this is a, a fantastic book that I highly recommend. Hi, hello. My name is Borch. Thank you for an awesome panel. Um, I, I've been, one phenomenon that I've been really interested in, uh, about, and I'm sure uh, Professor Hoppin will know much better than I, is this phenomenon of deep sea mining. Uh, and uh, this Canadian uh, Toronto-based firm called Natilius is like, uh, have this pro has this project to uh, mine gold from international waters. Although who knows what will happen with that. But um, one thing that this brings up for me is this idea of the planetary, and uh, some of you have mentioned the scale of the planetary, and um, sort of uh, bringing this in, uh, in conversation with what uh, Professor Gillespie said, uh, is the scale of the planetary, especially as it relates to like stuff like climate change, is there something novel in that, or has that scale already been implied from the very early days of capitalism? How can we think about the planetary without verifying it? Without? Yeah, thank you. <laughs> um, that's an excellent question. I have nothing to say about the Toronto people except that the geoengineers I work with said we're going to get to the asteroids before we get to the deep sea. It's <laughs> <laughs> that hard to mine, and trust me, they want to. Or they saw Ben Affleck. Yeah, I don't know. But asteroid mining is there's a gold tax report, and the EU is actually building um, a European space agency to the moon. All going to be 3D printed by um, Norman Foster. Great. Um, anyway, so we can keep extracting, don't worry. Um, and maybe that speaks to the planetary question, which is actually around thresholds and temporalities and kind of transformations of territory into kind of malleable and fungible. But for me, the, the question of planetary, it, it comes back to Trump's conversation, I guess. It, it's really interesting, and um, I both would like to think more heavily about it as having a, long, a very long history and a deep history throughout mercantile and capital and, and media histories, as well as trying to understand, for me, what is bothering me really specifically about the forms of the technologies of capital, particularly derivation, is the way that it's all about arbitrage on difference. 
And it actually leverages differences, right? It's the fact that labor doesn't cost every, the same everywhere. It's the fact that your infrastructures have differentials that are getting gained now and deliberately gained. And, um, and it's difference itself that's being consumed. And I'm trying to understand, is that novel? If it's not, do we learn something from, from unearthing that past? And if it is, do we need to shift our tactics? And I started to hint at the way environmentalists are rethinking and in fact, I've talked to internet activists in India, Nishant Shah and I were talking recently about the way that like, some days Facebook's your best friend against an internet shutdown, and some days you're battling Facebook on the exact same thing. And that you actually have to reconfigure, we have to reconfigure our politics and our idea and our concepts of what it means to be progressive to be able to negotiate tactically these things, while at the same time still maintaining some progressive vision about improving human well-being, you know, and, and justice in a more global sense. So, I mean, that for me is interesting in terms of how we have to understand, but for me, the planetary is fundamentally about the, the, the logistical integration without homogenization at, at global and now extraplanetary levels. So, this is what I want to respond from a very different perspective. Um, and of course, sitting here now, um, the names escape me. Um, sorry for that. I can look it up later. Uh, but um, I'm thinking of um, some uh, curatorial projects uh, that um, work with the idea of the planetary. I'm always uh, struck that those projects are very much about humanity, really. Like, how can we think of ourselves from a planetary perspective? And uh, so there's a strong connection to this trend of thinking of the more than human. Uh, uh, and, and how can we include the more than, than human perspective from a human perspective and that kind of paradox. So, um, I'm, I'm personally intrigued by how uh, a question like that, the, or yeah, do you say that the planetary is a question? Yeah, I think so. The planetary is a question uh, is really connected to much older questions and really these very primary questions, and, but brought into relation to the contemporary and the cultural of the, of the situation that we feel that we are in and that we are really investigating. I don't know, it's very, very different. Uh, response, but I just wanted to respond. I'll, just, I'll say one quick thing. So uh, maybe it's just my training where I hear that question and I just think uh, I, I want to look back and think about the ways in which extractive techniques were planetary, the kind of who had the power to go that far, draw resources out of the world. You know, to me, the, the question of uh, revealing the fiber optics uh, under the submarine cables mm -hmm. wasn't just that you see them and that's powerful, but you see that they're are following the same tracks as the, you know, the telecommunication cables following the same tracks as the trade routes. That tells me something. Maybe, and this isn't meant to be sort of like high in the sky optimist, so it's not, but maybe one of the things we're grappling with is how apparent that planetariness is becoming, right? So because these aren't just extractive technologies where the, you know, the sort of capitalists that can map it out can see how it's all connected, maybe, but the people at each point of contact don't have a lot of power, and we struggle with that. How do you teach someone that the, the you know the materials that are in their phone came from somewhere, or that their work is becoming somewhere else? That's difficult. Maybe when it's communication technologies, there's something kind of like risky about how linked that is, because people are become painfully aware. 
maybe that has a powerful possibility, maybe it's terrifying. Um, but so the planetariness is not new, it's sort of like the, the cognizance of the planetariness is enhanced. Mm -hmm. So I think, uh, Considering the time, we need to wind this down. So with visions of the planetary dancing in our heads. Oh, no. No, the street. Street levels. Well, exactly. Dance and I just keep going back to that moment with Tycho Brahe and Kepler. That, that switch, it's the same data. It's the same data and a totally different notion of who we are in the universe. And I think we're going to do that. Anyway, let me just um, thank you. Give a round of applause here to our And before we depart, I, I do want to thank a few people because, as you all know, these kind of things take a lot of labor, and the smaller the budget, the more labor it takes. And, and in this case, I really want to give a shout out to Danny Goldfield for doing so much to make this happen. And the advisory committee of Heather, Lisa Parks, Rachel Thompson, me, and Annie Wang, and uh, yeah, Ian Connery, of course, we're here tonight. The department was really helpful. Our dean, thank goodness she came through when we needed her. Mauricio did a great job on the logo. I hope you all got a mug. And uh, graduate students who like slaved away at the desk, um, Alan, Anna, Libby, Matt, and Ben. James, thanks for trying to rescue the microphone. <laughs> busy till the last minute. Um, Sultan's pre-conference, I'm not sure how many of you managed to get there, but it was terrific. And the longer you stayed, the more terrific it got. It was a really incredibly uh, moving uh, meeting. Uh, we're about to meet the DJs, so you'll have to thank them when you see them. And we had a bunch of sponsors, uh, the department that the organizers are in, CMS, MW, Open Doc Lab, Global Media and Technologies and Cultures Lab, the Departments of History, Political Science, Global Studies and Languages, Literature, Science, Technology and Society, and the Dean's Office, plus Jane Parity, and Microsoft Research, thanks, Bill, uh, and the Media Lab. Um, you probably all know we are in Media Lab space. Uh, it's always a little vague because CMS is here and we do media, so, oh, there's the Media Lab. Actually, no, we're in the Media Lab, but we're not of the Media Lab. We're in the School of Arts, Humanities, and Social Sciences. The Media Lab is in the School of Architecture. And uh, that's the key difference, even though spatially we're aggregated. And most of all, I want to thank you guys. I heard so many good papers uh, these past two days. I, uh, I want to credit our team for good curation. But I really want to thank you guys for some of you for making enormous schleps to get here. It was really good. At least what I heard was really terrific. I hope the rest of you had a good experience. So thank you. On behalf of the committee, thank you very much. Thank you.